0: Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 522nd show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Neil Hamilton author and retired director of agricultural law center at drake university who's going to be talking to us about his book the land remains a midwestern perspective on our past and future joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs ed broders and rick sweet to begin with we would like to welcome professor neil to the show how are you doing professor
1: I'm fine. I'm excited to be with you and uh, your listeners there in St. Ambrose land.
0: Thank you very much. We're thrilled to have you. Um, we call the first segment of our show Fadrok Danaran, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, can you start us off with some of the basic information on what conservation issues in the Midwest and what it has to face in both the past and it's going to face in the future?
1: Well, and as uh, folks would realize from the title of the book called The Land Remains, uh, it deals both with uh, a history on the land, and I know we'll get into that when we talk to the historians, but it also deals with our present situation and our future uh, and going forward. Uh, The land is certainly resilient, and uh, it could be more so if we took a little time and listened to it. Uh, Soil conservation is a perfect example. This is a subject we've been trying to deal with since at least the 1930s from a organized governmental standpoint. And uh, our progress up until uh, certainly the early 90s was fairly good, but now we're in kind of a period of, uh, I think, our commitment to soil conservation is lagging. So that's one issue that we need to deal with, soil conservation, and and its first cousin uh, by marriage, uh, water quality, is certainly one that uh, we hear a great deal of.
0: A quick question I would like to ask is, um, when you're saying that it was much more adamant up till the 1990s, in the last 30 years, why has it died off?
1: meant particularly in terms of the progress we made, uh, right, uh, people like to point to the fact that uh, you know, we reduced erosion in the state between the mid-80s and now by 40%, but almost all of that was uh, done uh, by uh, the mid-90s, uh, primarily through the implementation of the CRP program and the reduction in soil loss we had from retiring a significant amount of fragile land, as well as implementation. Of uh, the conservation compliance and what's known as a highly erodible uh, land provision. Since then, and I can speak to this because I'm, in fact, uh, an elected commissioner on the Soil and Water Conservation Commission for Dallas County. I think conservation's become a little bit harder of a sell. The NRCS isn't necessarily out selling conservation as much as they're out kind of selling financial incentives, and we've drifted. Into a period, unfortunately, where for many landowners and farmers, the expectation is if you want me to do anything uh, differently to care for my land, uh, you're going to pay me to do it. And so in some ways, I think we've lost that kind of public-spirited connection that went along with the recognition that soil loss was a, a significant threat, not just to individual land and
0: landowners, but collectively to the state. Let's keep the question modern. Uh, I grew up on a farm, 180-acre uh, sure, 108, sure. farm um, mm-hmm. uh, west of Davenport, Iowa. And sure. um, one of the issues when I was a kid was that the modern machinery was very productive but it wasn't it didn't do much to conserve soil matter of fact it really was detrimental and in from the 80s to 90s it seemed to be that they were coming up with modern machinery that was trying to preserve and conserve the soil in recent decades you've heard that you have these machines that are even better at it and yet you're still hearing about erosion being a problem. From your perspective of it, has the machinery improved, or is this a selling point for agricultural companies?
1: Certainly there are uh, better machines in terms of conservation tillage and no tillage than may have existed a number of years ago. Your question makes me think a little bit about uh, Leopold's, uh, one of his, many of his famous quotes, but one of them was, you know, in many ways the land is the, Uh, the well and the agricultural system we impose on it's the pump and we spend most of our time taking care of the pump and uh, making the pump work uh, a little uh, harder and so uh, I'd I'd ask you the question you're from that part of the state and probably some flat uh, fertile ground and I can't help but think that when you drove around this winter if you did You saw an awful lot of fall tillage, a lot of clean, bare fields that sat there all winter, ditches filling with snurt, as they call it, uh, dirt-covered soil. Uh, And certainly that's our experience here in central Iowa. And there isn't anyone, I don't think, that from a soil conservation standpoint that will tell you that fall tillage uh, is a good practice, but yet we do
0: it. Correct me if I'm wrong. The reason it's done is is because, and I'll probably tick off some farmer friends of mine, but I really don't care, uh, is because farmers, in their argument to financially survive, they, the amount of land that they owned or rent is astronomical sure. compared to what it was. And their argument was, I have sure. to do that because I, I run out of time in the spring.
1: Well, that's, that's certainly an argument here which then you know relates to one of the other issues we have uh, around land which is uh, you know the increase in scale and the concentration of operations and you know it's maybe simplistic and sounds like something a professor would say but uh, if you're trying to farm so much land that you can't do a good job of stewarding it uh, you might want to think about how you're farming and uh, there certainly are ways that uh, you can uh, farm without Uh, fall tillage, and uh, that big machinery that you're talking about. My gosh, you know, uh, people uh, have the equipment so that uh, we can prepare the fields and get everything planted within a couple weeks, whereas when you were a boy growing up, uh, you folks were probably pretty excited if you got the corn in by the middle of May.
2: Oh, yes, yes, Uh, yes,
1: yes. Well, let let me talk about another issue and touch on one, because this is very timely. It's in the news. You know, a fair amount of the book talks about the whole issue of public lands, And our rich legacy of public lands and leaders in public lands like John Lacey and Ding Darling and uh, Henry Wallace, Alba Leopold. And as we speak, right, the Iowa House uh, is considering a piece of legislation, uh, Senate Pile 516, passed the Senate, written largely by uh, the Farm Bureau, uh, designed to essentially prohibit the state from acquiring additional public lands under the guise and under kind of a a thin tissue uh, that uh, what we really need to do is make sure we spend all the money we have on maintaining uh, the land we have before we potentially acquire any more. Uh, There's a subcommittee hearing again tomorrow, uh, and I'm sure is that the crowd, it'll be packed with folks from county conservation boards and local governments explaining how important it is for them to have the opportunity. Uh, to acquire natural lands when they become available from willing sellers. And um, you know the state ranks next to last in terms of having uh, the smallest percent of the state available as public land. And a good part of that's in road ditches, if you actually look at the numbers. So that's an issue that uh, is a continuing one. The whole question of uh, public land and the access that uh, all citizens have. As the book says, and one thing we have to recognize is that we're all landowners. Uh, even if you don't have your name on the title to a chunk of farmland, you know, there are millions of acres in the state, uh, county and state parks, local parks, uh, all of our rivers and streams. And, and we uh, are going to uh, talk
0: a lot public. more about that, excuse me, uh, in the next segment oh, of the show. Okay. And uh, trust me, Farm Bureau won't listen to you anyway. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned in the next segment of our show. This is ROI and KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
3: Davenport, Rock Island, Milan, Coal Valley, Taylor Ridge, Bettendorf, Eldridge, Long Grove, LeClaire, Moline, East Moline, and Silvis. We're right in your neighborhood with local radio for the Quad Cities. KALA
0: Davenport, 88.5 FM. Hello, and we welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's day's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today is Professor Neil Hamilton author, and retired director of the Agricultural Law Center at Drake University. And we're talking about his book, The Land Remains, A Midwestern Perspective on Our Past and Future. Our history bus for today's show are Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. And Ed, why don't you start us off?
2: Thanks, John. Professor Hamilton, when I read your book, I came across my favorite obscure word, that word being usufruit. Would you like to define us, define that for us?
0: What's the word again? Could you spell it? What is the word? <laughs>
1: the word usufruct. Usuf... Uh, U-S-U-F-R-U-C-T. Usufruct. Well, what it, what it means is the right to use something. It's a uh, uh, legal concept that I believe goes back to Roman times, and it essentially a good example would be that uh, you might have the right to the fruit off of a tree— even though you didn't necessarily own the land that the tree was on, but you had the use of rights. so it's essentially a use right. and the idea is premised on that the actual title uh, may well rest somewhere else. and I think uh, what Ed's uh, referring to is that in many ways, while we're uh, the owners of the land, right, you often hear people say, "Well, we're essentially just uh, owning it today and, you know, in the future it's going to be owned by our ancestors or by someone else. And so we're essentially kind of tenants on it, uh, whether it's, you know, whether we're real tenants in a landlord lease situation. So instead, it's the idea that we, uh, as we use it, we also then have an obligation to care for it because the underlying ownership and interest in it belongs to someone else. It's it's a first cousin of the public trust doctrine, which is, in fact, something that is actually embedded in Iowa law. If you read the book, you know, I took eight trips to Cuba uh, with students uh, during uh, the last decade. And one of the things we were studying was uh, agricultural land reform. And, uh, of course, the Cubans, uh, given their socialist revolution, and the lands, most of it's actually owned by the state, but they were going through a process of entering into agreements with particularly young families to actually move out onto the land. And those agreements, rather than being kind of ownership as we would think of them, they called them use of agreements. And so you basically had the use right for 10 years and could continue, and you'd only use the use use right if, in fact, you abused the land or you didn't actually put the land to use. And so that's uh, where you don't encounter usufruct very often in Iowa. But I can tell you, you know, I have another book coming out this summer called The River Knows, and one of the chapters um, spends a fair amount of time talking about Robert Waller, and the work that he did before bridges in Madison County, where he was writing about the future of the state, and in fact, did a, wrote a book that was commissioned by the legislature in 1990. And he uses Yusuf Rupp as one of those uh, kind of uh, structures that we need to think about.
2: Rick, I have a friend who is a uh, farmer, and uh, he bemoans whenever we sit down and eat tacos every. Tuesday night, that when you try to convince a farmer to try a new method, like uh, you're mentioning fall tillage or no-till, a field, things like that to preserve the soil, keep the soil intact, uh, they, they look at you with glazed eyes, and if they don't hit you, they walk away knowing that you know nothing about farming. Is part of the problem that we have in preserving Iowa land the farmer's?
1: You know, when you say it that directly, it seems to point a finger at them. We are a direct group. (laughs) In in villainous ways. And, uh, uh, you know, clearly if we have problems, and the problems result from the farming practices that we have in place, farmers play a role. Uh, I think that there are probably other people Standing up alongside the farmers in the lineup, though, in that uh, yeah. uh, they might argue that they're locked into a commodity production system with relatively thin margins that encourages them to try to grow as much corn as, as they can, and it's difficult for them to break out of it. I think you could probably put the NRCS in that lineup as well, because we have lots of myths that we tell ourselves about soil erosion. And one is the whole idea that there's a tolerable soil loss limit, that uh, soil replenishes itself at five tons per acre in cropping systems, which uh, uh, I don't think anyone is a soil scientist actually believes. It's probably closer to one-tenth of that. And so we've We've done a lot to kind of convince ourselves that the way we're doing it is a good way to do it and that the problems aren't really problems. And so with soil erosion, it's like tearing a page out of a book, and then you tear another page out. And uh, you maybe you didn't notice the book getting smaller next year, but over time it certainly does. I was with Rick Cruz, a professor of soil scientist at Iowa State the other day, and he was telling me about research that he's involved with that shows perhaps as much as one third of Iowa's cropland has lost almost all of its topsoil of its A horizon. And now that may not be the flat uh, stuff in the Kerry Lobe in north central Iowa over where you folks are, but certainly on the western slope in our state, uh, we've elevated and moved an awful lot of soil downhill uh, over time and uh, so uh, I agree that uh, uh, you know it's difficult to get people to change uh, particularly if they're convinced that uh, what they're doing is right and if they have an echo chamber that uh, tells them that uh, on a regular basis but uh, you know it's hard to Uh, Look at uh, the reality both on the ground and in the ditches and what's flowing through the rivers uh, Without recognizing that we do have some challenges.
0: Could you say that? I mean backed along with both Rick and Ed were saying as I said I grew up on a farm you still have individuals the farm that my family has is not a flat farm So we Mm -hmm. have you know contour farming which works better than other methods but when I was a kid, you had that belief that that was kind of, and I meant this, that's in the 70s, that it solved or prevented a lot of problems. And then research came out in the 90s said that, no, it's not really that. It's, it doesn't save as much as you possibly think. Are there any new methods down the pike that are, are coming along saying that, you know what, this is something, besides you said no-till, I think, is, is a great answer. Are there other well, programs out well, here's,
1: there? Here's one that uh, maybe seems a little counterintuitive. But you think about all the data that we collect now on you know, on our planters and our applicators and certainly on our combines, uh, so that we have great data as to which parts of the field are productive, which parts aren't. And again, research shows that there's probably about ten percent of the ground we're farming that never actually produces right a profit. That it doesn't make any sense to actually be farming. Uh, that we're putting a lot of high-priced inputs on, most of which aren't being used because there's nothing crop-wise growing on it. And that's the perfect type of um, land that could be retired. And so, for example, you know, there's a famous professor at uh, Iowa State, Lisa Schulte-Moore, our most recent MacArthur winner, who's working on the STRIPS project. Uh, And STRIPS are, you know, that idea of planting narrow bands of prairie, of uh, permanent um, uh, plants uh, to both hold the soil, to provide uh, habitat. Uh, The NRCS has a program where they'll pay farmers to implement and put in strips. Uh, They'll let you put them in about anywhere and any place you want to. And so that's the type of thing we could be doing. There are some costs that go along with them, getting them established. But again, uh, over time, uh, people believe that they pay for themselves, they improve carbon content, they improve water infiltration, they make the soil uh, more drought-resistant because it has more water-carrying capacity, you have less sheeting and water runoff off the surface during heavy rains. Because you know we're clearly also dealing with a changing climate, that's presenting us with uh, you know some weather events that uh, we hadn't historically had to deal with. Ed,
2: yeah, um, Professor Hamilton. I thought for decades uh, when I farmed, I said I never wanted to to live my grandfather's life. On the other hand, ten thousand hogs in one place was just too damn many. Um, Can you talk about the effect of penning up the livestock? the effect that that's had on farming systems.
1: Well, I think there are two dimensions of that. Uh, certainly when I grew up uh, on our farm in the 60s and early 70s down Southwest Iowa, you know, I think in 1980 we still had hogs on close to 60,000 farms in the state and over half of the farms. And today we have uh, hogs on uh, fewer than 5,000, twice as many pigs, right? And so we have concentrated them which means that we don't necessarily have their manure to use as a soil amendment and fertilizer in lots of the parts of the state. We're kind of manure short. But in other parts of the state, we got more manure than you can shake a stick at, right? Probably more than the ground can actually uh, comfortably uh, handle and absorb. Uh, And then we've also changed the structure of swine production. Again, back in the 1980s, it would have been... uh, uh, pretty difficult to find anybody raising hogs under contract for somebody else. And today, I believe the number is that we're probably up to 90% of Iowa's pigs that are being raised under uh, con- under uh, contracting relationships, whereas the people actually taking care of them don't own the pigs. Instead, they're somebody else's pigs, and they're being raised under a production contract, which changes both the... I think the economic opportunity and it uh, certainly changes the politics of pigs. When everybody had pigs, they didn't smell as bad. When you were the only guy that had pigs and you had them all in one place, they became quite a problem. And uh, I think in, in a nutshell, that kind of captures some of the politics of pork and kind of the hog wars that we have gone through at different times. Maybe put to rest now because of how local control has been so eliminated, but uh, the tension is still out there in rural Iowa.
0: Okay. Uh, It is customary for us to give our guests the last word on the show. (laughs) Professor Neal, why do you think knowing about the conservation issues facing the Midwest today is, uh, is relevant in today's world? I
1: think because everybody has an interest in how we care for the land. Uh, you know, the land's a vital resource of the state. And whether you farm or not, uh, uh, thinking about how it's cared for and what goes into that and how it's related to water quality and, and other issues uh, makes it an, an important issue, whether you're
2: driving a tractor or, or pushing a pencil.
0: Okay, Rick, why do you think it's relevant in today's world?
2: Well, actually, it's, um, you know, we only have one, one Iowa. We have one ground I know how soil develops from my geology background, but I also know uh, how you can destroy it with uh, mismanagement. And quite frankly, the last 30 years, I've seen just that, mismanagement. I'm hoping the good professor can convince people to save our soil. Uh, I
0: sit there and think why it's relevant in today's world is because, again, um, back to what um, the professor was talking about. I had read that in 1960 somewhere there were 88,000 farms in the state of Iowa. Now, total, if we're talking both agricultural and um, farm lots or farming, um, hog lots or other forms of farming, there's less than 7,000. And that massive change in, in more than half a century is going to have an impact, on especially with future generations. Uh, one quick note before we end this segment, um, Professor, are those numbers? What are the numbers of farmers compared to? Because uh, you were talking sixty thousand, and then it's dropped yeah, to five thousand.
1: Number that the number that per, that had hogs on their farm. Right, right, yeah, and and so the number of farms at that time was around one hundred and twenty thousand. You know that issue of how many farms there are in the state is a really Uh, It's slippery like a bar of soap in the shower. I mean, most folks would say they're 80,000. But I'm sitting there looking out at the window at the acre of vegetables that we plant on our large market garden. And we're considered a farm by the USDA. In fact, we're two or three tiers up into uh, farming. I think if you're looking at it from the standpoint of what people might typically think of as a commercial farm, uh, raising livestock and, and grain, there's probably closer to 20 or 25,000 of those. Okay. Uh, and of the 80, you know, many of them are, and it's not that it, They aren't farms, but it's that whole question of what comes to people's mind, and particularly as you're thinking about something like soil conservation or farm program payments and and what's really floating the boat when it comes to
0: agricultural policy. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, San Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're
3: listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9:30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan quad city area. You can stream this show every Friday night at tunein.com.
0: Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 522nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled "Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zap-Zaptul. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Professor Neil Hamilton, author and retired director of Agricultural Law Center at Drake University, who talked to us about his book, The Land Remains, the Midwestern perspective of our past and future. The history buffs for today's show were Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or Station KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.